I think I'm having an art attack. Finally, another episode of Art Attack. This has been so long. We've taken, this is the longest hiatus we've ever taken in our life. I hate it. And I hope that this is going to be the only hiatus that we have moving forward. It is so good to be back with you. I can't wait to talk about art and especially a type of art that you know so well. And I'm going to learn a lot. And this is going to be fantastic. Meanwhile, you're the professor of art history and I'm just a painter. So I'm going to follow your lead. But I think that we're finally coming together. There's a lot of people that have been listening during our hiatus, which has been forever. And we're coming back uh, to talk about Eugene Delacroix, who is, in my opinion, one of the greatest masters of all time. Really, I mean, and 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 one of his paintings, in my opinion, is probably the top ten most important paintings of all time. That's a very weird thing to say, but I really that's a bold I, statement. I, I'm excited to hear why. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's just get right into Eugene Delacroix, Lizzie, and talk about. You want to start start off and talk about why you think he is important, or or maybe you don't. I have no idea sure. what you think about romanticism and, and Delacroix. Well, you know that I love starting with some context. So we yes. are all oriented on the same page. And right now, so we're transported back to the 19th century in France. And romanticism is seen as a transitional period in between neoclassicism and realism. So neoclassicism, these are all academic movements, or at least neoclassicism and romanticism are. And Neoclassicism is defined by rigid forms, pretty static state compositions, and the intent, the ethos is about morality, about improving society through rational moral thought. And then the romanticists, they were eschewing that belief, and they had the temerity to introduce dynamic movement and these frantic, feverish brushwork. And Delacroix is the best example. He and uh, and Jericho were really the two leaders of the Romantic movement. So they are, their fundamental premise is really based on this philosophical thought by Rousseau that man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. And so freedom, instead of moralism, now becomes the goal. And the way that we can achieve freedom, or at least discuss freedom, is through the imagination. And so we're no longer interested in the rational brain, but we're interested in the unfettered brain of the imagination, the um, the subconscious. So that is really, I think, the, the tenet and how the tenets have changed from one academic movement to the other. And then aesthetically, the compositions are a lot more crowded and there's less interest in creating these pyramid compositions and we have diagonal all over fields and the compositions, the canvases themselves are quite large to create this immersive experience for the viewer. So it's meant to be this holistic and just incredibly, you're ensconced in the world 
And then another important change is the subject matter. So the subject matter from neoclassicism is about the Greco-Roman traditions. So very often we see allegorical figures or figures from the past, maybe the Bible, and that relates to the interest in teaching and edifying. But now in Romanticism, we are engaged in the contemporary moment. And so we have recent events as the subjects of the paintings, as opposed to historical or mythological. And so those are some of the key distinctions, and I'm sure we're going to get back to them later, but that just to, to set us all on the same page, and that's really what's happening in the moment of art. Well, that was, that's good, because, you know, I always knew that Jean-Dominique Ang and, uh, and who was a student of Jacques-Louis David, uh, a neoclassicist painter, but Ang and Delacroix hated each other. They really had a kind of like a, a real distaste for each other. And, you know, ironically, they they showed in the same in the same salons. Right. They knew each other personally and they really didn't like each other. Uh, but they were both fantastic. I mean, they were really both fantastic draftsmen. And I find it interesting that, you know, these romantic painters like Jericot and Delacroix and Gros, they were still really trained i mean they were really trained class classically trained drafts people they really were and if you really look at the uh the brush of delacroix he goes back to michelangelo he's looking at michelangelo for inspiration and especially peter paul rubens he's really looking at rubens and if you see some of his some of his uh work you could really see rubens entering his compositions and his high-level draftsmanship. Now, that being said, you can see the brushwork, and I think that was the difference. But if you look at if you look at Peter Paul Rubens, you could also see the brushwork, right? He's an incredible, he's a, a, a wonderful draft, draftsman, but you could definitely see the energy and vitality, and I think that's where he gets the brushwork from. He was a, he was a, he was a major fan, and uh, as we're you know. Dave, David and, and Ang, you see everything is very rendered. Everything is indistinguishable from each other in terms of painterly strokes. You just don't see that. It's very tight. And like you said, very uh, symmetrical, very posed coming from antiquity as where Delacroix just goes bananas. You could just see him. He's like a wild man. In fact, somebody said, that he was a caged tiger. Forgot who that was. But and you could see that in his work. I mean, he was he was he was definitely a caged tiger. Now, I'm a fan of David. I'm a fan of uh Ang. And certainly I'm a huge fan of Ang's prime student, Edgar Degas, which is ironic that Ang and Delacroix hated each other so much because Degas collected Delacroix. And because Delacroix <laughs> was known to paint en plein air, which is right. what the Impressionists, what they really fundamentalized as a key aspect of their iconoclastic technique of, of art making. So there are lots of points of connection, points of departure. And I 
I think it's important that you mention that Angla and Delacroix were were enemies because they do come from different strains of artistic lineages and Ang from the neoclassical tradition. And I think Delacroix is forging something else, something a lot more emotional and a lot less controlled. And that's why he's this representative painter of the romantic movement. And I think that when we look at the apotheosis of his work, and perhaps this is the painting that you said is in your top 10, it's Liberty Leading the People from 1830. Definitely, definitely. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about a couple other signature canvases of his, but we'd be remiss not to start with, with the pinnacle. So the Liberty Leading the People, a lot of people think that it's an illustration of the French Revolution. And that makes sense because it's this big, dramatic, sweeping event. But it's actually, the French Revolution was in 1789. And this painting was a contemporary event. And it was painted in 1830. And it's painted to illustrate the, I think it's called the July Revolution. But it just happened in 1830. And so I think that's an important distinction to make because Delacroix is not looking backwards, but he's looking at the contemporary moment as romantic painters did. And then this canvas was supposedly an inspiration for Victor Hugo in his writing uh, Les Miserables. And there's in particular this one figure of a younger soldier, and he's wielding two pistols. And that is supposedly but widely regarded as the inspiration for the, the character Gavroche. So as a musical theater nerd, right. I love that. And, no, he perhaps got, and there he has, a... he's got the he's got the hat. So we know that that's the schoolboy, right? The wild, yeah. out of control schoolboy. Exactly. And, and go ahead. Well, I just I love that you mentioned the hats because hats are actually these significant integers of the class positions of some of the soldiers or some of the uh, the people who are are fighting in this painting. And I think that is an innovation that Delacroix, he utilizes in order to tell his audience a little bit more about the scene. So if we talk about the composition, there are lots of different types of people. We have somebody who was just killed in his night robe. He's partially nude. He's in the foreground. So he is, he's invading the viewer space. And you have to remember that this painting is so large that as a viewer, especially depending on where it's been hung on the wall, this these dead bodies are spilling into your own home or they're spilling into the viewing space. And so it includes the viewer in this dramatic emotional scene by activating the foreground in the way that the Delacroix does. So we have a man who's sleeping. We have a student who's holding these two guns, wearing that crazy schoolboy hat. We have a dandy or a member of the bourgeoisie with a top hat. And who is, by the way, Eugene to... Delacroix? Uh, supposedly, but I think that's been debunked. Really? God, that's it looks just I... like him. I mean, really? I, I, there's, well, you know, there's the famous portrait, there's a the famous self portrait, and then there's a couple of photographs of him. And that looks a lot like him, but it definitely is a represent, you know, representative of the upper class. So it yes. shows that the upper class, the lower class, the middle class are all coming together to fight against this authoritarian, totalitarian king. 
Right, Charles the Tenth, and that's yep. what the uprising it was uh, against Charles the Tenth, and ended up overthrowing that political regime. And regardless of whether that one figure is Delacroix, I think that it indicates something really important about this painting, which is the confluence of the real and the imagined. And as far as Delacroix's oeuvre, that's relatively unusual because he was such a strident believer in the romantic movement, the ethos of the contemporary. And so the fact that he would include allegory is pretty interesting. And I can't think of another example where where he did that. And the allegorical figure here is the central female figure. And she's shown partially exposed and she's wearing that, again, another significant hat, the, the Phrygian hat, and she's holding a French flag. And she is not a particular woman. She's not a, a woman cult from the contemporary moment, but she is the allegorical uh, symbol of freedom itself. And a detail that I love that also echoes the French flag that she's holding and waving is that you see Notre Dame <laughs> in the back yeah. and the colors of the sky because they've been illuminated through all this use of of gunpowder it actually looks like red white and blue and so the the tricolor of the french flag is echoed in the background with with the atmosphere which i just think is such a, a beautiful well, touch lizzie that's also been debunked no i'm kidding Has it? no i know I, but i always thought i didn't think that was the i didn't think that was the the color of the gunpowder. I literally thought that there was a little French flag on Notre Dame waving in the air. Well, that's maybe what I always is. thought that was. See, that's what I always thought that was. I think you're. I think. I think you might be reading into the painting too intellectually on that one. I think it's literally a a tiny French flag in the background. But I don't know. It I, happens. I, 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 but I'm not. I'm really not sure. But I think what what makes this and let's let okay. Getting back to the central figure. Uh, She's also painted in profile, which I've always said that the best way to paint heads are, are three quarters, number one, number two, front view, and the worst way would be profile because you're not getting the most imagination and ethos and energy from the subject. You're not going to just, you're only going to get a very flat Egyptian-like hieroglyphic image of the character. And I thought to myself, has there ever been great masterworks where the central figure is profile? And immediately I thought of Grandma Moses. I mean, right? Um, Jane, uh, Whistler's Whistler's work. Uh, she's not Grandma Moses. Uh, what's Whistler's it? mother. Whistler's mother. Thank you so much. So Whistler's mother, right? That's profile. That was an incredible painting. And then this one as well. We see her in profile and she even though this is completely allegorical, talking about a time and place and an, an important event, we see her as a essentially a Greek statue, right? Mm -hmm. So, which is which is quite bizarre. The handling, I don't have the painting in front of me, but I, I know this so well because I've stared at it at the Louvre, ironically, in the same room as the Jericho painting of Raft of Medusa, which is in my top five, along with this one. So those two are my top five painting of all time. And there are two paintings away from each other. And Jericho's, yeah, it's amazing. And it's, an, it's, it's the best room ever. So you have this incredible 
female figure and the drapery is painted with such um, precision, accuracy. I'm going to use the word draftsmanship again because it really is. You could really feel the pull of the dress and her stepping over those rocks, which is ironic, right? Because they destroyed all of the ground, all of the boulevards to take those rocks. And then after that event, they reimagined the entire city of Paris. Let's not forget about that. They use those rocks as barricades, which she trespasses over in pursuit of freedom. And then literally the entire reality of Paris changes overnight when they have those massive boulevards that they built that that came because of the French Revolution and, and the housemanization, and, right? Yes. So you have you have all these people, which shows what revolution is. Because revolution can only happen when you have all classes coming together. What right? And what we know when revolution can't happen. The antithesis of that happening is when you hollow out the middle class. And you do that by, you know, having people work their butt off and not being able to pay attention to what's going on, which is what we've had, you know, historically forever. We could see them when the, when the middle class doesn't rebel, nothing happens. The needle doesn't move. But when you get the poor, which is, you know, the guy next to Delacroix or the guy in the top hat, and then you got the kid and they have all of these people coming together from all walks of life, fighting the royalists, then you have a revolution. I think that is a really excellent point that Delacroix is very intentional to show the cohesion of this revolution. It's not just for one class of people, it's for France. And so I think that's why the figure of liberty, she's a personification of an idea, and that idea is freedom but freedom that impacts and and improves the lives of everybody. And I think that that speaks to perhaps why this painting was seen as so controversial and inflammatory. And initially it wasn't. The French government purchased the painting from Delacroix for 3,000 francs. Who knows what that would be in today's dollars because that was in 1830, but still seems pretty reasonable. And then a couple of years later, because of the inflammatory nature of the work, they returned the painting to Delacroix. Of course, because it was the people coming together to, right. <laughs> to, to uprise, to depose the king, right? So they were worried about that, like, uh, don't get any ideas, so we're going to give you the painting back. And yeah, then, of course, the painting- it's a propagandistic for me, so right. you can have it in your studio. Right, and then, of course, the painting was finally exhibited at the Louvre in, what, 1874 or something? Is that I right? I have no idea. But I think 1874. Yeah. I don't have the painting in front of me. I have no notes in front of me. This is just what, from what I remember. I think it was 1874. But here's why the painting, in my opinion, is so great, is because the Raft of Jericho, in, in the same way, the composition, the diagonals, the story, it's, it's a perfect confluence of story and energy and really solid drawing and painting and narrative it's everything coming together at once and that's why this in my opinion is his greatest achievement this is his tour de force this is really his master work he's done other great paintings 
but I can't even compare it to this one. I put it on the level of Wrath of Medusa, and then I'm going to go all the way to Stag at Sharky's by George Bellows because that was also just a marvelous understanding of brushwork, energy, composition, design, and ultimately emotion. And that's what this painting has. It really makes you feel something in your gut and it changes the way you look at things. And it's done in a way that's, um, you know, he's really bringing every single thing. He's, it's like everything in the kitchen sink, but in the right way. It's that perfect meal, right? Where you just have that, what was that movie where they had that perfect meal? But that's what it feels like. It's like, oh my God, I've never had anything. I've never seen anything that great before. And it's like everything comes together at once. And it, and it's almost, and it, and it, in my opinion, he was like, what, 33 when he did that painting? But in my opinion, he never reached something so great again. It's like the director who makes that one great movie or the, or the rock star or pop star who makes that one great song, but they don't have like a Beatles or Chicago level you know, album. They just have that one perfect song. I'm not saying that Delacroix didn't do great stuff. He did. But that painting was the top five greatest of all time. I love how it went from the top 10 to the top five. It's number one. It's number one right now. I'm <laughs> going best one. Painting ever. <laughs> no, I, I, it, I, I don't even know what the best <laughs> painting ever is, but I would, I have to put it in top five because the more I, the more I think about it, it's the perfect painting. It really is. And I agree with everything that you've said. I think that it's incredibly significant. And also just to add a couple of other details as to what makes it significant to me, I think that since we have so many different types of people, not only fighting, but also dying, it shows the ubiquitous vulnerability of the body. And mm -hmm. there's a fallen soldier in the foreground too, and he yes. wears the king's uniform. And so it shows that there are deaths on both sides. It, it's an incredibly democratizing painting. Right. Everybody should have the freedom to fight. Everybody, unfortunately, has the vulnerability to die. And I think that at the time, that was seen as pretty radical. And I remember reading somewhere that at this moment in French history, only 3% of men were allowed to vote. And I'm not sure how that 3% was determined, but it is completely elitist. And this painting dismantles mm. that concept of elitism. And it's for everybody. It's egalitarian. Yeah. And that is what I think is so incredible about it is just how how radical, how iconoclastic, and just how disruptive of both content, but also painterly conventions. That was said so beautifully. I love that. And I think that, um, yeah, it, I think that's probably your top five paintings after you just said that. I could just feel like, <laughs> wow, you just really, you sold me. I, I believe you now. Uh, I was going to say one more thing about that painting, about just being like this romantic artist like Jerry Coe and, and telling these stories, even in an allegorical way. It's like no one was really telling love so intensely, you know, and at the same time, they weren't showing terror and horror and horror so intensely. And that's what you felt. It, it's, it's the love of freedom and moving forward with democracy, real democracy, not fake democracy. And at the same time, it's terrifying. It's scary. Like you mentioned the, the, the guy who was soaked in blood in the foreground. I mean, he looks like he's been dragged out of his bed and murdered. We never saw that before. 
And could you imagine this time in history? There's no movies. There's no TV. This is cinema. You're going there and you're experiencing a painting like you like people experience cinema now. So it was, it, it was a whole other level of from an audience's perspective to experience a romantic artist's work. I feel like that's the first time we're seeing cinema on canvas because the neoclassicists, it's like a page from a book. Let's be honest. It's like, okay, well, here's an illustration. That's what it is. It's an illustration of mythology or the Bible. But now all of a sudden we have cinema coming to life, unfolding before our very eyes. Yeah, the storytelling is visceral. And I love the distinction between books and reading words as opposed to seeing images because there is something just very didactic, moralizing, and almost textbook-like in the neoclassical paintings, even though the compositions are are quite exquisite, but they just don't, they don't vibrate with that same vivacious energy. And when you're looking at a romantic painting, it's like you're watching the news. You're watching the the movement and the momentum of the scene. Not the news so, today. Not the news today. But <laughs> no, I know what you no, mean. The news in so, back back in the days of Walter Cronkite, that news. But I, you know, and also, you know, he's been said, and this is this is really great. When I hear uh, art historians say this, this rings so true to me. They say that he was the end of the Renaissance masters but he was the beginning of contemporary art. You know what I mean? Like, and then you look at historically, you know, Cezanne, Cezanne owns his work, Degas owns his work, Monet and Manet, they're all enamored with Delacroix. So these impressionists look at this hardworking guy who, by the way, had no wife, no family, no kids, but lived for his work. He was in it to win it. He was all about it. And you could see that in his exploration moving past liberty leading the people into his work in you know north africa and all of his even later into his work of just his personal work of uh on plain air of the sea and light and a study of light you could see where the impressionists were so inspired by him yeah absolutely and i think a, an example for me that illustrates your point is the death of sardanopolis and this was also a contemporary event. And he, I, I don't know if you know this painting. I, of course. I, it, honestly, I thought when I first saw that painting, I thought it was a Rubens. Yeah. Right. It, just, it looks just like Rubens, except for the one guy in the foreground who's once again in profile. But tell that story because the death of Sardinopolis is an incredible story. And it's dark as it's dark and it's terrifying and it's scary. And think about the time. Now we can look at it and be like, oh, whatever. It doesn't affect us because we're so immune with all of the media that's hitting us all the time, all the crazy stuff out there, our phone, our tablets. But in that time, people must have been shocked when they saw that. Right. So I, what I know of the narrative is that the Sardanopolis was an Assyrian king and he was just about to be defeated. So on the brink of defeat, and when he heard news that he was going to be overthrown, there was just this orgiastic scene of destruction and death. And he's shown on a bed, almost like it's a funerary pyre. And he 
asked his guards, he instructed his guards to kill all of these concubines, to kill all of these animals. And it was almost like this feverish attempt to just murder, to slay all of the things that brought him joy in life before the defeat and the dethroning. And there's no hero in the, the work, which I think is really interesting because in Liberty Leading the People, we're rooting for the people and we're guided by Liberty to do so. But in Death of Sardanopolis, there's nobody to root for. And we're just shell-shocked observing this scene of gratuitous and quite upsetting death. And there's a, a female figure in the foreground. I'll never, never forget this image of her being stabbed in the throat, this concubine. And not only is it erotically charged because the most of the women in the scene are partially nude, but also exotically charged. And that's another theme of of Delacroix's work is that he is so interested in the exotic. And that is a point of connection between his career and that of Angle, because Angle felt similarly about the exploration of the exotic. But there there's a little, if we look at it from contemporary eyes, some deforming ethnocentrism in this painting, just because there is no hero. And so the Western eye is not encouraged to relate to any of any of the non-Western figures, but that that's a, a different lens and a, a different form of interpretation. But I am so just captivated by the the drama. This is the pinnacle of drama, and it represents the moment rather than surrender that the king decides to kill everybody. And this is contemporary, just to contextualize, this is contemporary Iraq. What would be Iraq today? Right. Right. Yes. No, that's yeah, no, it's and and I don't think that I could, you know, think even even like uh, Rape of the Sabines by Poussin or any of those paintings, you just don't see the the blood, the horror, the danger. It just feels like, yeah, like you said, it's orgiastic, it's hedonistic, it's charged, and it's scary. There's something really scary and not in a not in a dreamlike way, but he has qualities, you know, and I'll say this. I think Delacroix has qualities of Goya, where Goya was able to tap into this reality and those moments of human beings who could be the most greatest, beautiful creatures in the world. And yet they could be the most destructive, horrible creatures in the world. And I think that's what he's, he's saying in this painting is that look at all this beauty and amongst all this beauty, it's being destroyed before our very eyes. And that's, that's a scary thing to think about because that's a microcosm of the world at large. That's a microcosm of war. That's a microcosm of, of nuclear war today the end of all things, just because one person wants to end it all. He's so narcissistic. He's so self-consumed. Like if I can't live, no one else can. Right. It really thinks like, Oh, you, you know, you think about, you know, Stalin and Mao and these dictators and you think, Oh man, if, if, if they just wanted to push the button and that's what it makes me feel. That's what it gets from me. That's quite, 
it's quite scary and it feels it reminds us of the danger that we're still living in today. And even more terrifying than that to me is the juxtaposition between this death and gratuitous violence and the complete dispassion in Sardanapalus's face. And just the fact that he is looking with neutrality at the scene and at this slaughter. And I think that is really upsetting. And you mentioned that all of this violence is happening before our eyes. And that's true, but also it's happening in our space because the painting is so gigantic. The figures are nearly life-size. Yeah. And then we, we have them confronting us and spilling into our own, our own world. And so I think that that is it amplifies the discomfort because not only is the scene itself horrific to watch, but we're almost forced to participate. Yeah. He's, you know, romantic painters in general did paint larger. They were larger than life. Right. And I guess conceptually that was part of the, the movement. And, and I don't, I don't think also that, you know, David and, and Ang and Jericho and Delacroix, that sometimes there are intersections that are not that much different. Yeah, the narratives are different, but in in reality, like there's a painting that Delacroix did, I think of her of his cousin, and it's a very formal portrait, very classical portrait, and it looks like an Ang. I mean, he's really like I can't even tell the difference. So, and and then there's other paintings of Delacroix that feel almost abstract. Like the figures, I, I don't want to use, I don't want to use the word, uh, but suck. They suck. They, they're terrible. <laughs> uh, no, but I'm not kidding. Like some of his paintings, I'm like, eh, that it's not even good. And some of the faces too look like Picasso. And I think Picasso borrowed a lot of his look from Delacroix's facial features. I know he borrowed from, you know, African statues, like Demoiselle d'Avignon and all of that. But I think that if you look at Delacroix, some of Delacroix's characters and portraits, I think Picasso took a lot from him. Interesting. So Delacroix is a figure that I'm so happy that we discussed today because he really draws together a lot of figures that you and I have talked about. So yeah. Picasso and Dagan and maybe not Angla, but perhaps we will soon. And so he's He's a transitional figure of great importance, and I particularly appreciate this liminal moment between the neoclassical and then the disruptions that would occur as a consequence of people like like Delacroix with realism and how that transitions to Impressionism. So it's all this beautiful cycle of a movement disrupting the one prior or becoming a continuation and I think that that is really prevalent and profound at this time in France. Yeah, a real bridge, perhaps, of an artist, right? Like, without whom, maybe we would never get to Impressionism. Maybe we would never get to contemporary art. Like, these people, these artists are so good that without them, there wouldn't be these other movements that we all love. So... You know, I've heard art historians say, oh, Delacroix, I don't personally like him, but, and I'm like, but it's, it, you can't discount the fact that even if you don't personally like his work, how important he was, and that a few and definitely one 
some of the greatest works ever of all time. Really kind of the, the type of painting that gives you chills. Yeah, you have to respect the lineage, even if the aesthetic is not one that you personally connect to. You, you have to think that he inspired probably the art that you love the most. Yes, for sure, for me, but not for others. <laughs> but who cares about the others? Because this is our show. So it is. It's and I'm so happy to be back. So oh before we end, do you want to um, tell tell people what you've been up to since our impossibly long hiatus? Yeah, uh, I've been painting and drawing a lot. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm continuing the, the journey of finding out what my great masterpiece is, you know, because I think that we, uh, we all don't want to get pigeon held into a, a movement. And I could see now why Delacroix did so much exploration or why Picasso did so much exploration or, you know, specifically George Bellows, one of the greatest Ashcan school painters in the history of the world. I hated the fact that he was turned on by Fauvism. I hated it. And because I loved him as an Ashcan painter, you know, with Sloan and William Merritt Chase, all these great painters, I want them to stay where I want them to stay. But now what I'm doing is a personal exploration of my own. And I'm not necessarily doing all hip hop images and painting the narratives of the culture. I'm doing other things. And I think that's part of an artist's journey. It's a reflection of where you are in your life. I got out of California and I, you know, I, I went to a different state because it's, it's time. It's time you change and transform. I love that. Well, I'm so happy to be back with you and can't wait to do another episode. My, my update is pretty simple. I got married i became a doctor and i had a baby yep well she is you are the you know one of the shining lights of knowledge in art history and i love talking to you about this and we're just going to do this every week uh and you know there's a lot of people who've been writing me where's art attack where's art attack where's art attack so here it is eugene delacroix check him out tune in all the time and what do I, how do I always end this? What do I always say at the end? I don't remember. <laughs> I used to have a great outro, but for now, peace.